everybody, and welcome back to the Be a Dreamcatcher podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Lynn. Thank you all so much for joining us today because I have an amazing guest that you're just going to want to listen to all of this podcast. Don't even pause it. Make sure you're on a good long drive because we are talking with writer, producer, a um, couple of other things to his name. I, I don't know. I have Myron Nash here with me in studio, and we're going to talk about all of his amazing accomplishments. Myron, how are you today? I am great, Jesse. How are you doing today? I'm doing Good. fantastic. So just to name off, I'm going <laughs> to rattle off just a few of these accomplishments and then we can dive into it. So uh, you executively produced a critically acclaimed film, My Father's War, uh, writer producer of Ariel Africa, um, have done some other major stuff uh, with budgets to about five to $30 million. Mm. <laughs> Tell yes. us about this. How did you get into this? And, and tell us more. Well, I'm probably the least likely guy to pop out of a cornfield in Indiana and slide into Hollywood and actually have a little bit of a career there. So I spent 36 years in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, naive, naivete goes a long way. I guess you put it that way, because at 24, I'd graduated Ball State. Uh, university in Indiana mm -hmm. and a friend of mine said let's go out to Los Angeles let's go to Disneyland but I had the fortunate experience to be able to visit a friend on the set of Lou Grant wow that was a show way back I, who knows when that was canceled but of course that was Ed Asner yeah Ed came out and said I hear there's a Hoosier in the house <laughs> that's a guy from Indiana Indiana yeah, yeah. and um I kind of got starstruck. I said, well, this is really cool. And I was working in an ad agency in Indianapolis. And I thought, well, I can stay in Indianapolis or I could give Hollywood a try and see what happens. Yeah. So that's what happened. 24 years old, I loaded up the Camaro with everything I owned, which was some clothes and a stereo system, I think. you know. Well, there you go. <laughs> Just a couple pairs of clothes. That's all you need. A few right, shoes, that's it. some socks, even if they're not matching. <laughs> Of course, I didn't really know anyone in Los Angeles, so I like to say that uh, when I drove into town, I had an oceanfront view right there because I was sleeping in the car for a few nights to figure out. <laughs> the know. best way to do it, though, right? <laughs> oh, it was great. Waking up every morning, fresh air, you know, yeah. waves crashing in. And um, I thought, all right, I'm here now, but who in the world do I contact or how do I get a job here? And so for a couple of weeks, I struggled trying to figure out a way to meet people in the studio system and other things, and nothing was happening. Well, this was before cell phones or right. uh, even Internet where you could find out where there were job openings and things. You know, I was looking through the phone book trying to find phone numbers of people to call. Phone book and word yeah. of mouth and physical travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and phone booths, you know. that oh, was yeah. The, yeah. But uh, you know what, Jesse, I had truly... I really believed in my heart of hearts that I was supposed to be there. It just felt like it was something in me. Right. It was escapism from because I grew up in a cornfield. Yeah. And I just remember watching TV and, and when I grew up and wondering about the names that were at the end of the shows and what all those people did and what an exciting thing that might be to be a part of that. So right. I had a fascination with it. And uh, sure enough, I had run out of money. I was called my parents and I said, well... I didn't, I didn't get my foot in the door. I'm coming home with two weeks out, you know. Right. I think I had about 50 bucks in my pocket. Ooh. On the way out of town, 
I was driving down Wilshire Boulevard, and I saw a sign that said Gilbert Employment Agency. And I thought, well, I'll just stop in there. Surely they're, you know, putting people in studios and letting them work on all these exciting shows and whatnot. And I went in, I remember so clearly that the uh, lady said, oh, honey, she said, uh, we have never placed anyone in a studio or anything to do with entertainment. We only place secretaries in accounting firms. That's what we do. Right. And while I was there, the phone rang. This happened. And um, she was on the phone and she said, you know something? I think I've got someone standing in front of me right now that I can send over. And a production company, a commercial production company had called and said they were looking for someone to come in as a production manager. Wow. I've got Mm -hmm. chills. Talk about a God thing. It is a God thing. And uh, so I went over for the interview, and I have to tell you, they were not going to hire me. Oh, but because, no. and, and I was so clear, I interviewed, I thought I gave it my best shot. And she was looking at my resume. This is true. It's kind of funny. Uh, Miss Jones, we'll leave it. That was her name, the right. lady that ran, the, <laughs> yeah. that ran this production company. I had a resume that was about, you know, it had a few things on it, which included I graduated high school, I graduated college, and I'd had this little job in an ad agency in Indianapolis. So there was no real experience. Right. The only other thing I had on there was that I was a member of my youth group at a Baptist church. Right. That was it. <laughs> hey, so. at least they know. That's saying. <laughs> Less is more. So this was 1978, and um, she said, I'm sorry, I just cannot hire you. Uh, you have no real experience. Do you even know what a piece of film looks like? Do you know what videotape is? You know, she had all these questions. And I was so convinced that I was supposed to be there uh, because I thought, you know, this is divine intervention. It is. I'm in the, the you know, I'm in the uh, placement agency, the employment agency, and that call would not have come in if I weren't supposed to have this job. So I, I really did say, I'm afraid if you don't hire me, you've made a terrible mistake. I was just that bold. Just about that bold. It, you know? I love it. Of course, I, I was, it. like I say, naive as well. <laughs> Sometimes ignorance is bliss <laughs> in our business. <laughs> so she, she said, I've got to really think about this. She said, I have some very qualified candidates, but if you're really, truly heart set and you believe you're the right guy for the job, give me a call in two hours and we'll talk about it. So I waited around, mm-hmm. went to the closest phone, phone booth, <laughs> phoned her. And she said, I'm really troubled. She says, I'm looking at your resume. And she says, I see this thing about this little Baptist church on here. What's that all about? (laughs) (laughs) So she asked you about it. I love it. I love it. She did. And she said, I'm going to give you a two-week trial. But I want you to know something. She says, we smoke and we drink and we cuss around here. And if you think you can handle that, then come on in. (laughs) So that was... I love it. That was the start of my career. I love it. That's awesome. And the best start of career story I think I've heard. That's great. <laughs> and it was it was really it was quite an experience. They were producing commercials, mm-hmm. little mom and pop commercials, and um, I was the production manager on that. But while we were doing that, the fortunate part of it was we were doing a lot of the post production down in a facility in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And when I would go in there to work, you would see anybody and everybody there. And it was a large post-production facility owned by Technicolor. And I thought, wow, this is really it. This is where I'd like to work. And so I befriended the all the management team there. And after just six months at the small production company, they brought me over to the large facility. Wow. And that really kind of launched my career because there... 
They were doing all the post-production for shows like uh, all the sitcoms, all the Whit Thomas Harris sitcoms, Golden Girls, uh, Soap and Benson and all those shows that were really popular. Yeah. But the one great thing that was happening there in 1979 was MTV was coming on board. So yes. every music artist was coming into that place. And I became the operations manager of that facility. And I met people like Olivia Newton, John, Gene Kelly, uh, uh, I mean, everybody, I, I, I didn't, the list just goes on and on, but a lot of musicians were coming in, and we were producing their music videos. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, wow. Yeah, I am in so. just utter awe at this moment in, in time just because. Uh, talk about definitely a God thing, and, yeah, and we talk about that on, on this podcast a lot and um, had the fortunate opportunity to uh, in, interview Amy uh, King the other day, uh-huh. you know, formerly Duggar, and we talked about this actual aspect of it. And when you were just talking about that phone ringing right as you were standing there, mm-hmm. holy smokes, and then just everything, bam, 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 bam. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's insane. It's, it is what happened. And, and you know, of course, um, like I say, everyone was coming in that facility. And because they were doing post-production there, it wasn't like you just worked with someone for a day or a few hours. Right. They were there for days at a time. And so I befriend a lot of people who come in, a lot of producers that would come in. There was a singer that came in. I'd admired him, actually, in his work, um, a guy named Gino Vanelli. Now, he's mm-hmm. not as well-known today, but at the time, he was really... I remember when I was in college, a lot of people loved his music, and I was a real fan. Yeah. Well, Gino came in, and he was doing a music... But in fact, he was doing a one-hour special for the CBC, uh, or the Canadian Broadcast yeah. uh, Company. And uh, I really wanted to work with Gino. I really loved his music, and they brought me on board, and I became a post-production supervisor, almost like an associate-type producer, on that one-hour special with Gino. Holy And left, uh, left the facility, and that was the last time I actually had a real job that wasn't working as an independent contractor or a producer. Wow. So that, was, that would have been like 1981 or 82, I guess it was. And... Um, it was fascinating. It was actually that was a lot of fun because that was really one of my favorite parts of this business, uh, in working with all these television shows, feature films, and whatnot. You know, to me, the best and most fun part of it all is the music. Yeah, it's you know one of the th- the funny things is so um, I think when we were here couple weeks back talking with Jackson Brumley, um, which by the way is sitting offset listening to us today. Um, we talked about the fact that I work for a radio station down in Montgomery. One morning we got on the conversation of all of the dramatic music that you hear in video games, TV series, all that. I'm personally a fan of Hans Zimmer. That's oh, one yeah. of my favorites. I worked uh, with Hans. Just, oh my gosh. I worked with Hans. Okay, yeah. if you can arrange a meeting just so yeah. I can say thank you <laughs> and just thank you. That's all I want to tell him because um, the one of the first movies that I was introduced as a kid that I actually remember going and seeing in, in studios or in the movie theaters was Spirit. And oh, yeah. I love, yeah. that's when I oh, fell in music. love with Brian Adams. That's when I yeah. fell in love with Hans Zimmer's music. And then I actually have a you know playlist of just Hans Zimmer music. That's it, period. Whether it's got an artist on it, if it's just the instrumental, it it is so important and vitally important. And then some of the shows that you even worked on, because if it, correct me if I'm wrong, but Dallas, mm-hmm. a couple of those shows, you know, they have that mm-hmm. that bumper music in the background that's playing. It just builds everything, and um, it's what makes it fun and exciting. Oh, it, it truly is. 
Now, I go way back. Most of the shows that I worked on were canceled way before probably a lot of your audience was born. It, it, <laughs> unfortunately, know, but, yeah. it was, but research-wise, yeah. I am familiar, and at least some of them you can still purchase and, and watch. I must say I have a few of the Golden Girl series um, and all of that good stuff, and yeah. <laughs> Well, I went over. I, I went over to a studio that was really hot and happening at the time, which is called Lorimar Studios. Mm-hmm. Lorimar was producing at one time twenty-seven weekly programs, Jeez. mostly for CBS. Holy but that was, of course, Dallas and Falcon Crest, Knott's Landing. They had a ton of sitcoms that they were producing. They had taken over the MGM uh, studio lot, uh, so all those sound stages. Yeah. And I worked as a post-production supervisor on Dallas, the original Dallas going way back. Um, so for But only I was only there for, uh, I think, six episodes is, is what I did. Mm-hmm. And they'd lost a producer over on Falcon Crest that had been transferred over to another show. And the studio had assigned me then to Falcon Crest, where I became an associate producer. And that wow. was really my first producing credit. But I'll tell you, we're talking about music and that show. Mm-hmm. Um, every Thursday morning, we had a 72-piece orchestra that would come in. Holy And shit. that's where we would do the, you know, lay down the, the tracks for the soundtrack for the show. And that was the days when there was really, you know, orchestras. Orchestra, and, the big, yeah. And, the- and we had a lot of money to spend on that. You know, Lorimar was, was, had really all of the shows. At that time, all the shows were, had real... You know, orchestras and musicians that would come in. Nothing was done by by you know, automation. automation yeah, or, nothing. Yeah, so it was really that was an exciting time. And actually, while I was at Lorimar, we did a show um, that Hans Zimmer actually became a part of it, and it was a sitcom. That's what I thought it was funny because we con- contacted Hans mm-hmm. and um, his company. He had several arrangers, might have been a half a dozen arrangers that he'd work with, and then there were a few up and coming composers. And they were starting to get into sitcoms. And even though Hans wouldn't put his name necessarily on the sitcom, yeah, his company was behind a lot of the music. And you can really feel the, kind of what was handed down through Hans, the, the feel of the style yeah, that, and everything yeah. was very much there, even in the sitcom genre. Wow. So, yeah, we did a little show. In fact, it was called Teen Angel. I got to take that back. I said that was Lorimar. That was actually a Disney production for ABC that Hans was involved with. Golly. So, But that was... Um, yeah, but I started out uh, actually producing the one-hour dramas, the primetime yeah. dramas for CBS. And then, uh, you know, sitcoms were still hot, and I went over to do sitcom shows, which were entirely different because, you know, in the one-hour dramas, you have a single camera. Yeah. And it's shot very much like what they call film style, and we were shooting film, 35-millimeter film. But over on the sitcoms, you have, you know, the set with uh, multi-cameras, yeah. four cameras, and we had an audience that would come in every Friday night. And that was a whole fun experience. Oh, I bet. Because you could really just set your show up, rehearse it starting on Monday morning, and by Friday night, you know, had a show that was in the can and then take it through the post-production process. But there were two different things between the one-hour shows and the half-hour sitcoms and the way right. that they were done. So you get a lot of different experience, and you get to meet a whole lot of really interesting people, you know. That just sounds like my whole cup of tea and the bread and bag of chips with it. Like, I, I would be in, in a... I, I'd be in like candy land for me. I'd be like, oh, just leave me in a corner. I'll just want to watch. <laughs> I definitely am very much that type of person that would love to just sit and watch that entire process because stuff like that fascinates me. I know very little 
very little about the production side of things on, you know, being behind the screen and then also in front of it, um, just from the very small little bit of acting that I did as a kid. But it has always fascinated me, and I think that's something that I, I respect highly is how it goes from point A to point B and then C and then final. Um, so that's just, that's amazing. And, and I just... I'm going back to all and how you got into this because you know the title of this podcast is Be a Dreamcatcher. And a lot of that ties into my Native American roots and wanting to encourage people to get out there and chase their dreams and catch them. There's one thing that I love that you said right there at the beginning was you felt like you needed to be there and that was your place. You had this strong feeling that this was it. And apparently it was because, here, let's look at your, I'm looking at the one-page resume, but really you've got about three or four pages to it. (laughs) And so tell me just a little bit about, and and we're going to come back to some of the great accomplishments and what you're doing now and all of that, but tell me in that moment in time, what was it that made you just finally pull the trigger and say, I know I feel like I'm supposed to be here, but, and you talked about divine intervention. Tell me mm. what that process was kind of like in your head, because I have something similar that happens um, with me on things that I strongly feel I need to do. And I know how my process and my head works. Um, but just tell us a little bit about that. What, what went through your head and just different emotions that you had come on? You know, I think anything in life, I think it is like that. I truly believe deep down inside that we're each created by our creator to do certain things. He's given us certain passions and dreams. They're deep down inside of us. Mm -hmm. And I felt it was going to be so easy to let that dream pass by. Mm -hmm. It was the rejection, the fear of rejection. Sometimes you have to push through just a little bit to actually make that call or connect with someone that might even be intimidating. The whole scenario, I mean, I grew up in a cornfield. Right. <laughs> so All you're talking to the crows. Landing, and- <laughs> landing in Los Angeles and on a Hollywood soundstage, it, it was truly intimidating. Yeah. But deep down inside, I really did feel like that God had a plan for me. I had a passion for something that I really didn't even understand, but I felt like I was supposed to do. And I knew that for me, it was also... Maybe a part of what I knew was inside me creatively mm-hmm. uh, that begged to come out to explore the creative side. At the same time, I wanted to be grounded because even with uh, these big productions and any kind of media, radio, television, anything like this, even though there's a fun factor, a very creative factor, the thing that I learned quickly was that it is first and foremost, a business. Right. It has to be something. I just really, you know what? I really was praying for wisdom to be creatively tuned in to what would be commercially viable. Mm -hmm. What works? What will an audience love? But also, and I think the thing that I learned through the years and maybe even lost a little bit of that during that course of time in Hollywood is you can get caught up in it. You can start forgetting that there's our Heavenly Father who loves us and actually yeah. helped us be where we are at any given time. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of it makes no sense, but sometimes you can look back and go, well, God had me in the right place at the right time and there was a reason for it. Yep. And so I think with that, I always deep down inside believed that if it was me that was just had a desire to do something, if it was for selfish reasons, to always just kind of be aware that 
that God has a plan for our lives. And if we seek him first, I mean, really, truly, yeah, truly. and seek his wisdom, mm-hmm. it just has for those doors to open. And sometimes it's as intimidating as can be, and you just right. want to back away and say, I can't talk to that person. I can't open that door. I don't want to make that call because, you know, you feel unworthy. I'm, right. you know, I'm not big enough. I can't. But if it's intended and meant to be, it's just pushing yourself just over that edge to yep. make that call to walk through the door and you'll be amazed at where I think God will take you in in anything whether it's your career your personal whatever whatever it is yeah I mean it really is amazing sometimes you just gotta let go and say okay I'll take that step in faith even I you know but as, but as a yeah sometimes as a, as a as a person as a human you always feel just you know it's like it's like, uh, uh, what, what am I doing? Yeah, I, I must say recently um, with everything that I have going on, it, there's there's a lot of times that I feel that way and being like, what have I stepped into? And I willingly subjected myself to this. <laughs> and, but I, it's funny, you, you mentioned talking about stepping through the doors. And a, a question I get a lot, and you may get this as well, is how have you done all of this? How are you doing all of this? You know, what's your vision? And I'm like, to be honest, I know where my my little small dream-minded end goal is. But in the end, uh, there's probably something a lot bigger that I'm not even prepared for yet because I'm still on the journey. But one thing that I think sums that up pretty well, I remember when we went to the ark um, a couple of weeks back. And you go to the door that that was what the replica piece. And there's an illuminated cross on the door. And I mean, this door is huge humongous and when you said that about opening the doors and and to us that can be intimidating i mean here you are sitting here looking at this door that's 10 times taller than you are and just about you know Mm -hmm. 20 times as wide but then you see the cross on it i think that's a good representation of saying i've got this let me open it and trust me with it and so I, I like that kind of analogy on it because there's sometimes you open the door and you're like, oh, I can't close it. <laughs> and it's like, I wasn't ready. I, and I, I, I had that kind of experience happen. And I, was, I told mom the other day, I said, you know, when you said you, you tell the Lord you're ready for something and then he finally lets you have it and it all comes in. It's like, I wasn't ready. You, you can close that. So I, I can relate to that entirely. Um, well, I, I look. I totally get that, and I have to say, even in my in my own career, I did feel like that doors will open, but they also close. Yes. And I found that the longer that I was in Los Angeles um, and working in Hollywood on these major primetime television programs, that over the time I had gained more and more experience. But the doors for me were being closed, and part of that was because I really felt like that a lot of the things that I was being asked to produce for the studios um, didn't, how would I put this? I guess I would say that they, uh, the content mm-hmm. was not as uplifting. It wasn't what it was in the late 70s and the 80s. And it was, there was really for me almost a decline in what, in the quality of the content. The quality of the content. Yep. And I felt, I I did feel strongly that I had been given a lot of uh, uh, experience, Mm -hmm. uh, had learned a lot about production and the process of, of producing. Yeah. But 
that the content really was challenging me and doors were closing. I actually turned down a few shows uh, that I was being asked to produce because I just didn't feel like, well, this, I'll put it this way. After all those years in Hollywood, I looked back and I thought, what have I been a part of that was even memorable or what changed a life or what had a positive impact on someone? And there was very little. Right. And so I really felt like for me that I was being led into a direction to become an independent producer mm -hmm. because I really feel a sense of responsibility to the audience. This is a powerful medium when you're talking about motion pictures, television, and radio and an audience. There's a responsibility to that. And I think our Heavenly Father does yep. uh, hold us accountable for what we're involved with. And so it became my dream and desire. And several, actually, my prayer was to be to find a way to be surrounded by other men and women in this business that understand the responsibility to the audience. And if they don't at least acknowledge God verbally, right. that they at least aren't offended when you want to do a, a program or produce something that is uplifting to the human spirit. And Absolutely. I, so that's, that's a little bit of what was uh, happening with me, and that was my prayer to be, to be surrounded by those people. So 10 years ago, moved to Nashville. And that is exactly what has happened. That prayer has been answered. And, I have to say, I'm getting yeah, chills right now because that just kind of hit the nail on the head yeah. for me. Uh, I mean, you literally just said basically what I'm trying to accomplish with this show alone, not, you know, this just this single show. And, of course, I have tons of other ventures, you know, that it's it's important. But this show specifically, you just nailed, the, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nailed it, uh, straight nailed it. Uh, wow. So wow. that's really it. So we just I started thinking about all the relationships and the experience that you build through the years and the other great writers that I've worked with and producers and creative people who also have that same passion and desire yeah. to honor our father with their handiwork. Absolutely. And so um, started working really independently, writing and, and putting together projects where, you know, that we feel like that really serve that serve purpose it and yeah. wow that's our mission i love so, it yeah so but uh, a lot of that change you know I, I did find and you were talking about the the amount of time that it takes and on these productions i'm just i'm backtracking a little bit but in 93 i was i kind of had a y in the road right i had two opportunities on the table at the same time i was had a chance to go and produce the new mickey mouse club in florida <laughs> I love it. And at the last, and I had actually accepted that position. Uh, and then another opportunity presented itself and said they were doing a series in South Africa for CBS. And when I found that the, the South Africa, I, mean, I couldn't even imagine. Right. I'd never even been out of the, the country, <laughs> yeah, let States. alone Africa. <laughs> I and it. I thought, okay. But it sounded so interesting, and so it really was. I was thinking, okay, if I stay in the U.S. or in Florida and produce the new Mickey Mouse Club, that's that. I know what that is. But there was something intriguing about that Pandora's box over there. Yes. How do you... It's shiny. Yeah, something <laughs> over there, the unknown. It just And I decided to take that, the position in South Africa. And I have to say that that was fortuitous in a, in a way. Because those relationships that I built there, we did a series called Sweating Bullets for CBS. Mm -hmm. We shot in South Africa because it was so much less expensive. Yeah, Our budgets, yeah. you know, we were shooting one-hour episodes for 
375000 as opposed to it was going to cost $1.2 million per episode in, in Los Angeles. So we, so we had, um, we worked with a South African crew, 11 different languages. Uh, Talk about language barrier. Language barrier. I was the only American producer that went over. There was two Israeli producers that came down and a producer that came from Canada. So, But it was a CBS series, and it was the challenge of all challenges because what I found out is that that's the day that never ends. Right. <laughs> eight hours ahead. So just as we were wrapping, wrapping our production day, the calls from Los Angeles would start coming in and saying, "What happened to that?" You know, and you'd oh, be up all no, <laughs> you'd be up all night. Oh but, no! But I met an incredible writer. He was an actor at the time, but I met a, an incredible writer while I was living in South Africa. His name's Craig Gardner, who actually became one of my dearest friends. He's like a brother to me. Yeah. But he has that same sensibility about what is uh, creatively not only challenging but something that is commercially viable and as an independent writer I work with Craig a lot these days and uh, a lot of those relationships have stayed all the way from the mid-90s so sometimes you jump into things and you don't even really know why but you look back over 25 or 30 years and go there's relationships that are solid that are connections that are actually in a way sometimes it I, I really do believe God puts people together to create a whole a whole piece picture a whole mm -hmm. piece because no, none of us are none of us can a, do an it island or do it on our own right and so it's putting together these uh, fabulous teams and of course you know you mentioned jackson brumley a minute ago and one of the great things that had happened just a few years back i had met jackson and of course his father had was the incredible albert e brumley mm -hmm. who wrote music that you can almost turn to any page in your hymnal and it's an, uh, it's an, Albert, an Albert E. Brumley song but knowing that uh, Jackson's dad had written the song I'll Fly Away and the incredible story behind that started working with Jackson to acquire the rights to that project not only the documentary but a full-length feature film which is not only in development it's been scripted Craig Gardner's the writer my friend and uh, that is something now that has had some development money behind it, but it is a fantastic story. And I just say, anybody that doesn't know the story of Albert E. Brumley and that song. You need to go look it up. You need to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we, yeah. Uh, we had a podcast um, with Jackson that actually is out, out now. If you're um, on Spotify or listening to this, go, go mark that one to go take a listen to if you haven't uh, yet. Um, it's a great, he, he touches a little bit on that. So I'm glad we're expanding on that and this, um, because it's, it's, I know it's going to be an amazing project. Yeah. I, I can't wait. Well, it's a great movie. We've had it budgeted. Uh, this, the screenplay is just fantastic. It's one of those screenplays where not only is it full of great music that just, you know, you know, it's funny, the song I'll fly away. That is a song that's been recorded more than any other gospel song in the world. I think there's 9,000 known recordings. Mm -hmm. And what's unique about it, it's known around the world. Yeah. And you can be in Africa, you can be in Ireland, you can be almost anywhere, and people know that song. They know it. And so I think about great movies like uh, I Can Only Imagine, was, oh, which was based yes. on a song, and a friend, friend of mine produced, a couple of friends of mine produced that movie. But what I love about I'll Fly Away and the reason we got on board with that project is because we realized that the legs that it has and the historical value of that 
and that audiences around the world can connect with Absolutely. that and that story. So that's been something that's been really exciting for us to be a part of over the last uh, year and a half of developing that project. I'm in awe. I mean, really, I really am. You talk about starstruck moments. There's there's very few moments that I've, I've been starstruck. One, I can recall one time uh, I was sitting at um, Sambuca's in downtown Nashville. Um, my actual vocal producer was performing that night, and in walks Randy Travis and his wife, and they sit in the table in front of us. And uh, I'm like, Mom, Mom, that's Randy Travis. <laughs> I get real excited. And uh, so that, that was one, one time and was able to get a picture with him. Turns out his wife and them actually knew who I was. So when she told me that, I about fainted. Because um, she kept looking at me, you know, and I'm like, am I being that obvious? I was like, I need to turn around. Like, am I really staring that much? And she said, no, you just look familiar. She's like, who do you work with here in Nashville? So I told her, uh, worked with Pat Holt and, you know, Earlene Mandrell's husband. And she said, that's where I know you from. You're working on a new project in his studio. And I said, uh-huh. <laughs> it's just, I was like, okay. I've officially reached that status. I'm good now. Thank you. <laughs> well, that is the fun side of it because you, you do, again, you get to meet so many people and I'm always amazed. I, I, at, you know, working with actors and yeah, it's it always amazes me the talent they have their gifting. Yeah, you can change an entire page of dialogue the night before, and they come in and they just rattle it off like it's like it's nothing, like it's natural, and they make it look like it's mm-hmm. they're actually experiencing it as it happens. It's it's a real gift. Yeah, but. Uh, What's really interesting about the business we're in is it's it's not just the actors. That's what people see. Yeah. But it's all the behind the scenes talent. I mean, it's getting a scene to look right. To, uh, you know, the cinematography we mentioned, the music, but it's all the different crafts and all the different areas that have to come together. And these are the, I mean, extremely talented, gifted people. Yeah. Who just know what to do and you know i just get on the producing side i just get get to be able to through the years work with those people and kind of get them all back together for a project that they're all excited to be a part of and it's just amazing i uh to see it i i look at so many things and go wow i could not do that i don't even know where you begin how did they learn these to do it things you know Mm -hmm. but it's their gifting you know and you really see that almost in all walks of life you do see that certain people uh, really rise mm-hmm. to, a, a, to to a certain level that they're gifting, and I think they're giftings from God. Yes, that Absolutely. they're a, able to achieve great things that a lot of uh, you know that that I wouldn't be able to. Right, but you do. <laughs> But yeah. you just enjoy it. You enjoy seeing it come seeing it. together and how it happens, you know. It's one thing. So one, you talk about the cinematography. One thing that I have always been curious to go in and watch would be how they do the CGI stuff and mm. the recreation now. Mm. But then I would have loved to have been on the set of the original Star Wars films. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, okay, at that point, you're rolling on tape. And you're having to cut and literally cut, slice, and oh, paste yeah. it and That's, edit it together. Yeah. And they still made it look believable and, and, and a sellable commercial. I mean, still 
one of the largest sellable commercial products out there. Um, but the house, how all of this is just like the music too. How all of this has evolved so rapidly. Oh, truly. Um, even we could cut it down to the last 10 years. It's oh. moved so dramatically, let alone the last, you know, 30, 40 years. Well, Star Wars probably started that. Yeah. You know, in a way. I mean, you know, they didn't have all the digital technology then, but it really was the beginning of a lot of the compositing and what they call the layering of, you know, being able to get a lot yeah. of these effects. Um, I was fortunate enough to be involved with two different projects that I thought were really cutting edge on the technology side. And uh, one of those was a movie uh, with Brad Pitt called The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Mm -hmm. It just so happens I'll fly away. The song was used in that movie. <laughs> hey, talk about starting there in. You go. There you there go. We're you go. coming full circle there again. You go. <laughs> However, uh, that was... Um, that was interesting because, you know, that's where Brad Pitt had to age backwards. Yeah. So there was a lot of technology and a lot of compositing, but very few of those shots of Brad were actually uh, filmed with the camera. A lot of it was done with a still camera, and they had, you know, we had 360-degree still cameras around him, and each one of those shots almost came from a still frame that was put together. Holy and there's a funny little story about that. Here we go. Uh, okay. I know we're getting way off. No, no, the, this is the no, podcast may be over. No, 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 you're here's the thing. The best part about this podcast is if we go over time, we'll go over this time and then we can always do a second one and catch up on fun stories because that's that's been actually been a request on a few of them. So well, that, that, don't worry about it. All right. Well, that movie was produced by Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall. Mm -hmm. And they were looking at the dailies, and after they had taken Brad's head, you know, and actually every shot was composite. Brad's head was put back on his body, whether it was a little kid's body or whether it was an old man's body. Oh but God. every shot was composited with Brad's head. And um, it was funny because they'd put together quite a few of the composite shots, and, and Frank and Kathleen, everybody was screening the 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 really the dailies uh, what they call the dailies or the screeners for the movie to take a look at a scene and brad just didn't look like brad they said well we've got brad pitt but it doesn't look like brad pitt what it's his head but why doesn't it look like him and they went back and looked at other movies and realized that brad actually when he speaks holds his head at a two degree angle so oh. they went back and changed and recomposited a head to put it at an angle <laughs> oh and all of a sudden it looked like brad pitt you know but it, it's just really small little the tiny small details detail. like that and two degrees is yeah. not a lot but it's enough to make a difference that's for sure and uh <laughs> that's that funny it. that was it the other uh movie that i mentioned which was really a breakthrough was avatar oh james yes. cameron 3d i loved it but another one of those movies I remember that, seeing in theaters. And that was, I really, it was kind of one of those rare things because I wasn't producing. I had uh, become a marketing director for a company that was, uh, which was really out of the box for me. I mean, and I don't even know how that happened, happened. <laughs> but it did. I was asked to come on and, and uh, be a marketing director for a company that was doing a lot of the technology on that movie. And that was working, of course, with Cameron. But that was, as the marketing director, that was where that whole uh, terminology came out, where they decided Cameron wanted to call it the immersive experience, mm -hmm. the 3D immersive experience. But that was quite a movie to work on because that was uh, technology upon technology. Technology, technology upon technology it was like you know okay just the fact so. that you've worked on avatar and just a few other things that you've mentioned yep i am officially 
yep, starstruck. Totally. <laughs> we've hit, we've hit the full blown status now. Um, that was one of, again, another one of those movies that I remember going to see in theaters and you're like, holy smokes. Yep. Now, yes. of course I was younger when that uh, came out. So the bathroom breaks kind of messed me up. <laughs> I was like, quick <laughs> run. Okay, I'm back. What about a mess? <laughs> you know? Well, and yeah, I was glad they put it, the, the first theater, on the right, right next to the bathroom, so we didn't, you were quick in and quick out, they didn't stick you all the way at the end of the hall, and you had to run, and yeah, so that that was that was a plus. Um, really quick, there is a, something that we discussed last time, just off, off mic, um, that I wanted to touch on a little bit, and we've got enough material, we could go into a whole nother second podcast episode and we may have to do a follow-up once we get the i fly away feature film and all of that going and i may bring you and jackson in both on that um to do a a a dual interview so that would be really cool that'd be a lot of fun but one thing that i i'm actually very familiar with uh that was in my time frame (laughs) is aerial africa Mm. um Tell me a little bit about that experience in, in writing and producing. And I know you did some narration script for that too, mm-hmm. correct? I did. Okay, yes. yeah. Tell us about yeah. that. Well, that was a great experience. Again, that almost goes back to my uh, working in South Africa in 93 on the CBS series that was called Sweating Bullets. Uh, but those same friendships through those years. You know, it's kind of funny. Once I got to South Africa and started working, I had a really... I. Working in Los Angeles, I mean, it's the concrete jungle. Yeah. <laughs> now all of a sudden I'm working in the, in the real, jungle. In the jungle. Yeah, exactly. And it was really interesting because as long as you're on the soundstage and you're working in those days, it seemed like they never ended. But occasionally I'd get a chance to get out of the studio and out into the bush. And that's where I think really a very cathartic, almost life-changing experience happened for me. I can't say that I know that I was an animal lover before that, Mm -hmm. but going out into the bush and just within your peripheral vision all around when you could see giraffes and lions and and, uh, monkeys and and, uh, water buffalo and all these different species of animals in one place was such a, a moving experience, an emotional experience. I remember sitting in my car out in the middle of that and feeling emotionally like, wow, this is God's creation. Yeah. And it changed me to see all those different animals. I became a, a wildlife lover, and I developed, uh, actually started producing some wildlife programming. <laughs> right. You know, Animal Planet and all that yeah. was coming along and was able to be involved with some wildlife producers. Those friendships had stuck through the years, and uh, a production company in South Africa said, wow. We are going to be producing a series for Smithsonian called Aerial Africa, but we have no writers here that are prepared to take that on. And this is a big show because it's Smithsonian. I was about to say, yeah, no, no, no big deal. No yeah, pressure. No pressure. And it was interesting because I said Smithsonian wants to shoot. Everything has to be aerial. We have to have all the narration and all the dialogue. You know, everything that's written has to be uh, everything has to be an aerial perspective, and we can't use drones. These are real helicopters that are going to be flying around. So for six weeks, you know, living in a helicopter and going out and shooting aerial footage of Africa, That's just the amazing. wildlife, the mountains, the ocean, you know, the Cape Town and Johannesburg, all the different places there are, and then to try to tell a story about it when you've only got aerial perspectives, you know, from, you know, so it was, it well, was, it was a challenge. Fit all that in. Yeah. So it was six, one hours and we're telling the story of Africa. 
uh, and these beautiful locations. And it was quite a, it was a challenge because I have to admit that as a believer mm-hmm. and a really a creationist, I mean, I'm yeah. a, uh, it's hard to not in, in input some of the own. It was, yeah. Well, Smithsonian <laughs> yeah. really likes it. If you say, you know, that this mountain is billions of years old and they and, like the know, science aspect, the, the yes. science aspect. And Hey, I'm all about the science, but I also happen to believe the Bible. And I believe that they go hand in hand. Good good science corroborates the Bible and vice versa. So, yes. I just went, so I was actually trying to write these scripts, you know, the narration uh-huh. about the mountains and the formations of the earth and everything in a way that could be that Smithsonian could buy into it and, and go along with it. And they, we did, it was a, it was a challenge. It went back and forth, but it ended up being able to push through not, not an agenda, but really just good solid storytelling storytelling and factual basis mm-hmm. about this beautiful country in the southern hemisphere of africa and you know uh, uh and mostly that was all south africa botswana and namibia and, yeah. and south africa uh but um yeah those were six one hours and it was very challenging uh Jeez. but uh, but it was also a lot of fun you know uh, i am yeah. okay i'm slightly i'm so like i'm exuberating you know, pride and, and proudness moment here, but also I'm a little envious. It's like, okay, I want to go. <laughs> well, it is great. South Africa is a great place to visit, and um, you'll never be the same yeah. after, after you come back. To I've, I've never been. I've never actually, um, much like you at the beginning there, not out of the United States. Uh, of course, a little different day and time uh, that we live in now. Is, but if yeah. I ever have an opportunity to go with somebody I know that knows the native culture, yeah, I'll go. <laughs> Yeah. I've seen locked yes, up abroad. I don't want to. Yeah, that's. Uh, I don't want to end up in a jail cell of bamboo and be like, yeah. oh, there's no cell service. That's great. So, well, this has been just phenomenal. Thank you so very much for sharing your story. And, and I mean, there's, like I said, there's more here that we could go through, but I kind of want to save it for uh, some more time. Um, and then especially if we come back with the feature film, I'll fly away. I'd love to get into some knit and grit and um, maybe we could do a nice little, uh, you can do an on you can do you can do an on location podcast. See, that would be awesome. Just have everybody, Everybody can come over and speak with you. you Absolutely. (laughs) I'll have, as you can see, my setup is very simple and easy. That's the way I do it. Real quick, before we sign off uh, for for this episode, what is one piece of advice that you'd like to share with people today on going and chasing your dreams? And what is one piece of advice that you wish you would have told yourself back when you started your career? (laughs) Well... (laughs) <laughs> well, I can answer maybe the first part of that. I think it would be look for the open door and don't be afraid to walk through it okay. because there's a good chance there's something on the other side of that that's just for you. If it's not, you can always you can always, always say clo- no. <laughs> back out and close the door. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You'll know real quick. Right. But I think probably the one thing – I mentioned naivete at the very beginning of the program, and that's, in a way, it's a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. And I think also the wisdom Mm -hmm. to really check in your spirit at all times, your surroundings, because there's as as much good as there out there as there's an equal amount of of bad, and you can 
you know, I, I do think that you have to be really cautious mm-hmm. about how who you align with. Right. And what your mission is. If you know your purpose, it can get off track real fast because there are those who would like to take you down. So I think mm-hmm. that, and, and I've had a, there's a lot of that and a lot of it's hard to get out of. So I think just always being aware right. and seeking wisdom. And uh, I just always look for integrity in people and people that we align with and that we work with and knowing that we are all on the same page moving at all times. You just got to always check in your spirit are the things that I'm involved with and the things that I'm doing right. going to take me to the place where I think God intends for me to be. I love it. What what some great words of wisdom to kick everyone off. There's your first words of wisdom. Make sure you check in with your spirit. Myron, thank you so very much for coming on the podcast. I look forward to the next time that we can get on. And Jackson, thank you for being our studio audience of one today. We actually have a studio audience. This is exciting. Um, Guys, thank you. This has been fantastic. I can't wait to see you all next time. And uh, for those of y'all listening, you are listening to the Be a Dreamcatcher podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Lynn. Be sure to go out and follow us on Spotify podcast and Apple podcast. And then, of course, you can always find the latest episode on my website at jessielynn.net. Myron, we will see you down the road. And thank you again. Thank you, Jesse.